Welcome to the World War I History Podcast, produced by the MacArthur Memorial, a museum and research center dedicated to preserving and presenting the history of General Douglas MacArthur, which includes the story of World War I and that of the millions of men and women who served in that war. The Sinking of the Lusitania in September 1907, the RMS Lusitania completed her maiden voyage across the Atlantic and arrived to great fanfare in New York City. Pictures of the ship's arrival show thousands, if not more, crowding the docks and shoreline to witness the ship make its way into port. The voyage created a great deal of excitement on both sides of the Atlantic. Named after the ancient Roman province of Portugal, the Lusitania had made the Atlantic crossing in an astonishing four days. It was, according to some, yet another example of man's mastery over nature and material. In an age where industry and art were often hand in hand, she was considered a lovely work of art. The press built her the loveliest of all that have made memorable crossings from the caravels of Columbus. At 30,395 tons, 785 feet long, with four funnels and a max speed of 25 knots, she was a luxury skyscraper floating on the water. Amenities included flushing toilets, electricity, elevators, and a wireless telegraph office. She was said to be more beautiful than Solomon's temple and big enough to hold all of his wives. The Philadelphia Inquirer described the social prestige one gained just by being a passenger on the new marvel. The man who came over in the Lusitania takes precedence over one whose ancestors came over in the Mayflower. A ship of the Cunard line, the Lusitania was also somewhat a product of the British Admiralty. In 1903, the American J.P. Morgan tried to buy up the various passenger lines to form a monopoly on travel across the Atlantic. Cunard, a British line, was threatened by Morgan's move until the British government stepped in with massive loans and subsidies on the condition that Cunard build ships that the Admiralty could requisition in the event of a future war and then hire only naval reserve officers. The Lusitania was one of the vessels born out of this relationship. Because the British government was so heavily invested in Cunard, construction plans for her deck included space for the emplacements of 12 6-inch quick-firing guns, if needed. Atlantic crossings during the late 19th century had been very dangerous. One in six passenger liners ran aground or were lost at sea. It was such a dangerous trip that author Catherine Ledeau offered this travel tip to female passengers. I have always felt that a body washed ashore in good clothes would receive more respect and kinder care than if dressed in those only fit for the rag bag. By the early 20th century, however, the Lusitania was considered a state-of-the-art safe passenger liner. Sea disasters continued to occur, but the Cunard line possessed an excellent safety record. In 1911, the Lusitania was surpassed in size by another Cunard ship, the RMS Titanic. When the Titanic sank in 1912, some of the lessons of that disaster were applied to the Lusitania. More lifeboats were added, and on transatlantic voyages, the crews made a show of daily lifeboat drills. These drills involved crew members lining up next to the lifeboats they were supposed to operate in the event of a disaster. The more observant passengers noted, however, that no part of the drill ever included actually lowering the lifeboats. But even in the aftermath of the Titanic disaster, most felt safe on the Lusitania. 
When World War I broke out in 1914, many liners were requisitioned by the navies of the belligerents for use as supply or troop ships. The Lusitania was not requisitioned because she required too much coal to be economical for the British Admiralty. Instead, she had gun rings fitted to her deck to allow quick installation of guns to her deck, just in case she needed these in the future. The Admiralty also claimed cargo space aboard the Lusitania and maintained exclusive communication with the ship. Cunard no longer had direct communication with the vessel on voyages. Instead, their offices received and transmitted information through the Admiralty. Passenger service continued as usual, although there were fewer passengers than in previous years. With a full speed of 25 knots, the Lusitania was faster than warships and twice as fast as submarines, the new emerging threat of the war. Speed was considered the best defense, and as such there was an early sense that the Lusitania was as unsinkable as a ship could be in 1914. In 1900, the British Admiralty looked upon submarines as only the weapon of the weaker nation, a perfidious, ungentlemanly weapon that should be outlawed. Ironically, by 1901, the British had embarked on a campaign to build an underwater fleet. Other countries were also developing this capability. By August 1914, Germany had the fourth largest submarine fleet in the world. Despite not filling out the top three, its fleet was the newest and most advanced. Its U-boats had the best range and the best depth performance. It was not out of the question for one of these vessels to travel 5,000 miles before returning to port for repairs or resupply. With the capabilities of U-boats rapidly advancing, soon the big debate among navies around the world concerned the nature of the submarine. Was it an offensive or defensive weapon? Was it best used to defend your coastline from enemy bombardment or invasion, or was it better used to hunt down and dispatch enemy warships? This question was still rattling around when the war broke out. Upon hearing that Great Britain had entered the war, German Admiral Alfred von Tirpitz is said to have exclaimed, All is lost. Squeezed between its enemies Russia and France, Germany now had to deal with a blockade by the British Navy as well. The German press spun the entry of Great Britain into the war as a mean-spirited stab in the back. For the British, the German invasion of neutral Belgium was the act of a brutal nation willing to trample the innocent. Stung by this bad press and surprised by Britain's entry into the war, German hatred and bitterness was largely focused on Great Britain early in the war. This feeling only intensified as British warships began stopping and searching ships headed to Germany. The Royal Navy seized any cargo, whether equipment or food, anything that could help Germany's war effort. It didn't matter if the vessel was neutral or not. The legality of these seizures was questionable, but German protests were ignored. Since the war had started, both sides had done everything they could to cut off each other's supplies, often ignoring international law and selectively defining what contraband was. As stalemate was reached on land, Germany began looking to its submarines to break the deadlock. On October 20, 1914, a German U-boat had sunk a British merchant ship off the coast of Norway. Prior to sinking the commercial vessel, the crew of the U-boat had boarded the ship, searched the cargo, and then ordered the crew to abandon the ship. As the ship was scuttled, the U-boat obligingly towed the crew members' lifeboats to shore. The U-boat captain was worried about being disciplined for these actions. No one had ordered him to sink a commercial vessel, and no one had envisioned a direct war on commerce. 
So far, it had mostly been searches, seizures, and the laying of minefields to disrupt shipping. In the end, however, the worried captain was actually commended by his superiors for attacking the enemy's supply line. A new precedent had been set, and a vulnerable new target had been identified. On February 4, 1915, Germany announced a campaign of unrestricted submarine warfare that would begin on February 18th. The campaign would turn the waters around Great Britain into a war zone, except for a designated route north of Scotland. The safety of ships of allied or neutral countries in this zone would not be guaranteed. This campaign was justified as a way to counter what the Germans perceived as the unscrupulous blockade of Germany. The hope was that most ships would avoid the area rather than risk destruction, and thereby starve Great Britain out of the war. The announcement prompted objections from the Allies and neutral countries. Although there had been a great deal of rule-breaking and bending by all, unrestricted submarine warfare was seen by many as crossing a very serious line. Many saw it as a direct assault on an international naval code of conduct that had existed since the time of Henry VIII. Termed the cruiser rules, this 16th century pillar of international relations had established a custom whereby an unarmed ship could not be destroyed on sight. She could be boarded and searched, but if indeed neutral, she had to be let go. If she was not neutral, she could be destroyed, but only after proper accommodation had been given to passengers and crew. Despite protests from allied and neutral countries, the Germans inaugurated their campaign of unrestricted U-boat warfare and lodged a few more of their own complaints. Winston Churchill, a 41-year-old First Lord of the Admiralty, had actively encouraged British ships to fly flags of neutral countries to baffle and confuse the enemy. The Lusitania did this in February 1915 on a voyage from the United States to Great Britain, when at the request of nervous passengers, she flew the American flag instead of the British flag. The Germans saw instances like this as a major breach of good faith. The Germans also questioned the quality of America's neutrality. The United States government offered no aid to the Allies, but cited international law that said American individuals and corporations had the right to engage in business with any country. American businesses such as J.P. Morgan lobbied for and received permission to extend credit to the belligerents. Theoretically, this credit and access to American goods was available to anyone, even the central powers, but the British blockade of Germany made German participation in this market impossible. Therefore, it was the Allies, particularly the British, who made the most of this seemingly bottomless supply of resources. Between October 1914 and May 1914, hundreds of millions of dollars in credit had been extended to the British alone. Within a year of the war, this number would surpass a billion dollars. America was neutral, but German bitterness towards America was growing. Seen as linked by culture and language, and by a rather pro-Allied neutrality, American supplies reaching the Allies were soon seen as visible evidence of the perfidious nature of Britain and her offspring. Many German officers believed that the only way for Germany to survive the choking blockade she was faced with was to destroy any Allied or neutral shipping bound for her enemies. This responsibility fell heaviest on the shoulders of the young U-boat captains. Germany was in a fight for her life, and the ends would justify the means. 
It was in this atmosphere that the Lusitania, back in the United States, prepared to head once more across the Atlantic bound for Liverpool. On Saturday, May 1, 1915, passengers began boarding the Lusitania in New York City. The morning papers featured a printed warning from the German embassy, reminding people of the U-boat campaign and the fact that the Lusitania was traveling into a war zone. The warning advised passengers that they were taking their lives in their own hands by traveling on the ship. The warning produced excited chatter as passengers boarded, and some did cancel their trip, but for the most part people were reassured. Speed was supposed to be the best defense, and even operating on three instead of four boilers as part of a wartime economy measure, Lusitania was still faster than an enemy vessel. Plus, many passengers thought that Germany would never target a passenger ship carrying Americans. To do so seemed to invite the entrance of the Americans into the war on the side of the Allies. Passengers were also reassured by the fact that the ship's captain, Captain William Turner, had signed the ship's cargo manifest and declared that there was no contraband aboard. This alone, in the minds of many, meant that there was no reason for a German U-boat to target the Lusitania. In fact, the manifest would be updated after the Lusitania sailed, to include 4,200 crates of Remington rifle cartridges, packed 1,000 to a box, 1,250 cases of shrapnel shells, and 18 cases of Bethlehem Steel Company fuses. This illegal contraband made up a very significant portion of the Lusitania's cargo. But the passengers didn't know this, and as the ship began its voyage, most tried to shake off their fear. A total of 1,962 were aboard, 1,266 passengers, including 139 Americans, and a crew of 696. There was also other news to talk about. Word was circulating about the introduction of chemical weapons on the Western Front, and there was also a little bit of glamour to the trip. The millionaire Alfred Vanderbilt was aboard, as was a smattering of other famous passengers. There were also a lot of Canadians trying to reach Great Britain in order to enlist. These topics and people provided a bit of a distraction. But seasoned travelers noted that unlike normal transatlantic cruises, the atmosphere aboard was relatively subdued. Conserving cold, the ship made slower than normal passage across the Atlantic. Meanwhile, back on April 30th, U-20, under the command of Captain Lieutenant Walter Schweiger, left Germany to begin a patrol of the southern coast of Ireland. Ironically, he had been ordered there based on disinformation the British had fed to the Germans. To distract the Germans from the landings at Gallipoli, the British had leaked reports of troop transports getting ready to leave the southern coast of Ireland with the intent of invading Schleswig-Holstein. This campaign of misinformation put U-20 in the path of the coming ocean liner. Schweiger proved to be an industrious submarine captain. Anxious to strike a blow for Germany, his diary is peppered with references to the ships he was hunting. On May 5th, four days into the Lusitania's voyage, Schweiger finally sank a ship, a schooner with a deck gun. Later in the day, he fired upon a 3,000-ton steamer that was flagged as a neutral Norwegian ship. In his diary, he mentioned thinking the Norwegian markings were fake, and without investigating further, fired a torpedo at the vessel. The torpedo missed its mark, but soon reports were being sent to the British Admiralty about a sub operating off the South Irish coast. Warnings were broadcasted to ships entering the area. 
By May 7th, as the Lusitania neared the coast, 23 merchant vessels had been torpedoed in the area that the Lusitania was headed for. Some of these were destroyed by Schweiger's U-20. The same day, President Wilson's personal envoy, Colonel Edward M. House, was invited to Buckingham Palace by King George V. With increased U-boat activity, the two talked about the possibility of a passenger liner being sunk. House told the king he imagined the American public would be horrified if a passenger liner were targeted. The king absorbed this information and then asked, Suppose they should sink the Lusitania with American passengers aboard. Meanwhile, the passengers on the Lusitania began packing up their cabins in preparation for arrival in Great Britain. The mood noticeably improved. Many believed they had beat the odds, and with the voyage nearly over, they were in a jubilant mood. By 1 p.m., land was in sight, and land implied security to many. At 1.20 p.m., Schweiger spotted a forest of masts and stacks. He and his crew initially believed they were seeing multiple ships, but soon one huge passenger liner came into focus, the Lusitania, and she was heading right towards them. Immediately, Schweiger ordered his crew to dive to periscope depth of 36 feet. The Lusitania was about two miles away. For a short time, she changed course, and Schweiger worried he would lose her, but then as Captain Turner and his crew worked to triangulate a course for the Lusitania, they unknowingly turned the ship right back into the path of U-20. At 2.10, Schweiger gave the order to fire a torpedo. Most of the passengers were finishing lunch, and many later remembered hearing many comments over lunch about how the Germans hadn't dared to strike a passenger liner. A lookout on the starboard side saw a torpedo a thousand feet away, streaking through the water like an invisible hand with a piece of chalk on a chalkboard. Some of the passengers also saw the line tracking towards the ship. There was a heavy jolt followed by an explosion, then a second explosion that blew debris up through some of the funnels and onto the deck. At 2.12 p.m., Captain Turner ordered a turn towards land, but the ship's steam power was virtually knocked out, and the Lusitania was already listing 15 degrees to starboard. The ship had been traveling at 18 knots and was now virtually out of control. Within a matter of minutes, Turner knew he could do nothing to save the ship. Passengers immediately understood what had happened. Although they had worried about U-boats the entire voyage, the attack with land in sight shocked them. Some poker players with good hands chose to keep playing cards, but most passengers started frantically for the decks. At 2.14 p.m., the electricity on the Lusitania blinked out. The wireless operator switched to emergency radio sets to send out distress signals. Below decks, the sudden darkness merely increased the terror. With no electricity and with the ship listing at an ever-increasing angle, the elevator stopped, trapping passengers in decorative metal cages. Seamen below the decks were also unable to get to the top deck to help with lifeboats. Passengers struggled to put on life jackets properly, and families became separated. Conflicting messages spread about whether to evacuate or not, but as the ship was clearly sinking within minutes of the torpedo strike, a rush on lifeboats soon followed. In the haste to get the passengers off the ship, some lifeboats crashed down on other filled lifeboats. Other lifeboats capsized and passengers were drowned in the suction of the water swirling dangerously on the sides of the sinking ship. Many passengers, unwilling to trust the lifeboats, dove into the water. Lifeboats that had successfully entered the water frantically rowed away from the sinking ship. Many husbands and wives refused to be parted. 
Some women were forcibly pushed into lifeboats. Chaos ruled the decks. Survivors later wrote of the callousness and violence exhibited by many fellow passengers. In the frantic struggle to survive, in some areas it was every passenger for themselves. There were also heroes, however. Survivors remembered millionaire Alfred Vanderbilt tying a life jacket to a mother and her child and then ordering his valet to find all unattended or abandoned children. As his valet corralled children, Vanderbilt was seen carrying two children at a time to waiting lifeboats. Passengers described him as calm and collected. When the deck submerged, he was washed away and never seen again. Other men and women also tried to help their fellow passengers. Captain Turner remained on the bridge until water washed him overboard into the sea. He managed to cling to a floating chair and was later pulled unconscious from the water. As the bow of the ship sank, some passengers rushed for the stern. It had been 18 minutes since the torpedo struck. The bow soon struck the seabed, and the stern, with propellers still rotating, emerged above the surface in a manner similar to the sinking of the Titanic. To the shock of many struggling in or on the water, the ship quickly slid beneath the waves. Survivors remembered human screams and the groaning of the ship's hull and funnels as metal bent and separated. What struck them most was the silence that fell over the water as soon as the ship went under. The ship had traveled about two miles from the time of the torpedo attack to the moment she sank. Survivors were scattered along this trail, about eleven and a half miles off the old head of Kinsale. In all, only six out of 48 lifeboats had been launched successfully. Of the 1,962 passengers and crew, 1,191 lost their lives that afternoon. The main cause of death was drowning or hypothermia. Those that survived the sinking had to wait for hours in waters at a temperature of 52 degrees Fahrenheit. A total of 764 passengers were rescued. Three later died from injuries sustained during the sinking. Many survivors later could not forget the trauma of watching children and babies die of hypothermia. The Cunard Line offered local fishermen and sea merchants a cash reward for bodies found floating in the Irish Sea. Some were recovered as far away as the Welsh coast. 289 bodies were recovered, 65 were never identified. 885 victims were never recovered. The sinking was condemned by the international community. The next day, the German government issued an official statement that the Lusitania had been carrying contraband of war, making the sinking justified. Great Britain stayed silent on this topic, instead choosing to exploit the propaganda value of an attack on innocent civilians. 128 Americans lost their lives in the sinking. The British hoped this would draw the United States into the war, but despite the horror that swept through the United States, most Americans, President Wilson included, did not want to suffer the horror of a European war. Two years later, however, when Germany once again announced a campaign of unrestricted U-boat warfare, the specter of the Lusitania rose again in the minds of Americans. Combined with the Zimmerman telegram, it helped push American public opinion in favor of a war against Germany. Captain Lieutenant Schweiger, the U-boat commander who sank the Lusitania, was later killed in action on September 5, 1917, when his submarine U-88 hit a mine and sank while being chased by a British Q-ship. Thank you for listening. 
If you have any questions, suggestions, or comments, please contact Amanda Williams at amanda.williams at norfolk.gov.